3: and get 10% off your plan.
2: Welcome to today's episode
4: of Brave Commerce. I'm Rachel Tippograph, the founder and CEO of Micmac. I'm Sarah Hofstetter, president of Profitero. And this is a show that talks about what's relevant in e-commerce for the world's biggest brands.
2: So, Sarah, how do you think our bet went? You were right, Rachel. I I, I respectfully concede.
4: You know, I was right in some regards, but not in every single category. You know, there wasn't a day that actually transferred to every single type of consumer product subcategory.
2: If you're trying to find like the little silver lining to make me not seem like I lost, I appreciate that. But Cyber Monday was the runaway winner in terms of overall revenue as compared to the other days. It's true. What
4: did you end up buying?
2: I think I bought what a lot of other people bought. And I don't mean like the Instapot. I think I bought for myself. I did not buy that many gifts. I bought Nespresso pods. And Justin was right from the last episode where he said that some of those things were going to run out. And he was right. So I lost out on the Amoretti. And so I just stocked up on the peppermint and the chocolate. Mm -hmm. Um, But I bought for myself, looking at a lot of the purchase behaviors, the bigger winners. Were things like freaking hair clippers, you know? And so when you start looking at all the different things that that one, vacuum cleaners, you're not gifting that. If you're going to gift a vacuum cleaner, you may as well just like throw in the towel to that relationship. Shout out to our clients at Shark Ninja, great vacuum cleaners. Actually, they they were uh, according to our assessment on Amazon, they were one of the biggest mm-hmm. gainers. So. Props to whatever you guys were doing with them. Thank you.
4: They're amazing clients. But it's funny, you brought up nail clippers. On the Micmac end, you know, one of our clients that was the true winner of the Turkey Five was Rayo's pasta sauce. So again, like people are cooking for themselves, for their nuclear family.
2: Yeah. I mean, I'm curious how many people ended up going with the bigger turkey versus the smaller turkey. But I mean, you're not going to see nearly as much of that on e despite all of the momentum against click and collect and things like that. Rachel, what what else did you see? What was most interesting is that at Micmac, you know, a lot of what we focus
4: on is paid media and traffic spiked on November 21st. Interesting. Yeah. And every day following, traffic began to decrease, which, you know, if you remember a few episodes, Sarah, when you and I were predicting what was going to happen in the holiday season in early fall,
2: we were like the holiday season's going to start a lot earlier. It's definitely been a bunch of uh, singles and doubles, not necessarily home run days with probably the exception of Cyber Monday, but you know, somebody on my team brought up, let me give her credit, Laura Richardson, our head of North America customer success, brought up a very interesting insight just as a mom and said, you know, people are shopping more on the weekends in general because that's their time that they actually have to breathe. Mm-hmm. So, that actually, you know, November 21st was a Saturday, so I think you're bringing up a really Interesting point, which is when people are, are working at home and they have such a hard time separating personal and professional during the weekday, the weekend becomes the time that you do shop. And because the deals were so exceptional all November long, and from what I'm seeing, continuing to be pretty stellar, and Cyber Monday rolled into Tuesday, I don't know how many emails or promotions you got saying, "Yeah, yeah, one more day is Cyber one Monday." More day.
4: Gotta love J Crew and Madewell for pushing that message.
2: Yes. By the way, wearing my J Crew sweater slash blazer, which is otherwise known as a sweatshirt that actually just looks like you're professional at work. <laughs> Another hot trend of 2020. Yep.
4: Well, it's funny that Laura, she's absolutely right, and she's particularly right in the alcohol category. I think one of the interesting things that we've continued to see since the beginning of the pandemic in March, is that e-com alcohol sales are really spiking right before the weekend. So typically, Friday continues to be that biggest day. And what we saw at Micmac was literally right before Thanksgiving. So that November 21st to November 23rd range is when everyone was buying booze online. And actually, Cyber Monday was one of the worst alcohol sales days that we've seen at Micmac.
2: Well, because you have your Thanksgiving hangover. You don't want to have that. But I think it does go back to this whole idea of (laughs) self-care. Not that I want to say that alcohol is self-care, drink responsibly. I really feel like people who are are avid listeners to the podcast think I'm a raging alcoholic. It's every episode. I know. Well, we keep having these BevAl clients on. It's true. It's true. You know what? It's a good category. It's a hot category. Mm-hmm. I do think that this goes back to a couple of themes. Number one, uh, particularly around Bevel. One is, yes, they're they're buying for the weekends. And so that's likely for treating yourself. B, and I, I don't remember who shared this, and I don't even remember if this is on the podcast, is the idea that Bevel can be a last minute purchase because you can throw it into your Instacart. You can throw it into your Drizzly. Like those are the kinds of things that even if you run out, like you'll be able to find someplace else to be able to have it. So it's less of an issue, I guess. So we may see that Bev Al continuing to have that drumbeat to the holidays and, and possibly beyond. And that changes the way you think about marketing because you're not thinking about marketing like the Super Bowl because there is no tent pole there's no home run. Mm-hmm. Gosh, that's a lot of metaphors here. But you're thinking about it in terms of like the singles and doubles that you can win whether that's every Friday or certain other ways of looking at it. So you're going from tent poles to tadpoles. You're going from home runs to singles if you're in the BevAl space.
4: And you know, Sarah, it's one of the earliest conversations you and I've ever had about e-commerce. What I've been preaching my entire career is that e-commerce is an always-on endeavor and it's hands-on keyboard. You cannot just set it and forget it. And this is a mindset shift for most of the categories that you and I work across.
2: I I think I've stolen that hands-on keyboard thing, but I've stolen it with credit, kind of like the way I just gave credit to Laura. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yes. I think you're right. That's one of those things like we've seen if you've fallen from page one to page two on search results on these retailer websites, you may as well be in the gulag.
4: Talking about being ahead and not falling behind, I'm really excited for Jessica Spence, who's the president of Beam Sumtory brands. She is such an amazing thinker around how to design teams to deliver on what we're talking about. Because if you don't get the team structure
2: right, then nothing can get accomplished. On top of that, one of the things that really makes her special and I think the organization special is the fact that they're thinking about how you change and then, boom, changing. hmm And to steer big, big companies like that is no small feat, but to recognize the changes in consumer behavior globally and adapting as such, I think, is just remarkable. Well,
4: let's bring Jessica Spence onto the show, another sister who has a like-minded spirit like Sarah and I, a bias towards action. Jessica, I'm so happy you made the flight from Singapore to New York for this recording. I'm delighted to be here. You know, you've spent the last 15 years in the spirits industry. And this year, I imagine there's been potentially more change than in the last 15 years when it comes to your industry. Why do you think it took a pandemic to transform the spirits distribution model?
1: I think when you look at the drinks industry overall, this may sound a bit self-critical, but I, I would say... We are a relatively traditional industry. When you think about how our product is made, where we come from, I think there was a large feeling when sort of, quote, digital happened that, okay, yeah, this is happening out there, but it's not really happening to us. We're still going to put liquid in barrels. It will still sit there for 15 years. All of those wonderful pieces of craftsmanship and heritage in our brands, you know, they're not really going to be changed by this. So I think there wasn't, you know, we're not naturally, perhaps the most forward looking was was part of it, if I'm being very self-critical. It is an area where when we looked at how people bought alcohol, there's a lot of purchase for immediate consumption. There's a lot of relatively spontaneous choices. There's a huge amount of investment in the entree, in going to bars and going to restaurants, And that whole system didn't feel initially like it really lent itself to the world of e-commerce in particular. People were saying, well, the product's bulky, particularly if you look at something like beer. You know, people want it now. They don't want to wait for a 24-hour delivery even or, you know, two days, three days. So I think there was a lot of skepticism about whether particularly e-commerce would really change much for us. People felt like everyone was very fixed in their ways. And that was even further cemented by the fact that there are a lot of legal restrictions so unlike a lot of other categories, we were facing, you know, in many markets, like in an India or Russia, you legally can't sell freely on e-commerce when it comes to alcohol. And even in the US, there's a patchwork of different rules and regulations. So there was quite a lot of things that were kind of keeping us in our comfort zone and keeping us stuck where we were. Some some good reasons, some less good. But definitely this year has been phenomenal. So my whole agenda to kind of drive e-commerce and to drive a different set of thinking on consumer journeys, I mean... the only thing I would thank COVID for, but I would have to thank COVID for this one.
2: Well, it's one of those things where you want to look at the silver lining and this becomes that silver lining, at least from a commercial perspective, because it's just so hard to see anything else as it relates to that, right? Yeah. And I think
1: something like this just gives people, the whole of this year for me has just been this phenomenal chance to do marketing experiments in a sense you know we normally talk about nudging behaviors and gentle change and whether it's from you know working from home being flexible the use of e-commerce amongst groups who never did the the pivoting of retailers and and customers this year has just given us the opportunity to take some really really bold steps and to to take some risk that i don't think we would have ever done in in you know even in a 10-year period without this forced external pressure so it's just been this phenomenal opening up of habits and the status quo and inertia that has actually I think also is, is driving obviously you know some incredible damage but also a huge amount of creativity
2: would you be comfortable sharing a little bit more about maybe an example of that I think that
1: one of the pieces for me that, that that's very close to home is you know when we look at how our customers how we engage with our customers and how we're talking to them about how we attract consumers in the future. I mean, we have a very traditional model in the past, I guess, of we thought about people first meet a brand in the entree. They walk into a bar. They have a fabulous bartender who will explain to them the history, the gorgeousness. They'll prepare them this beautiful cocktail. And that moment is magical. And it is when you get it right. It, it nails it. It's when you talk to so many people about their favorite drinks, they'll tell you a story like that. And all of a sudden, we've had to kind of recognize, well, those moments aren't happening. And how do we connect with consumers when they're sitting at home? They don't have all of those wonderful things in front of them. They don't know how to make a cocktail, but they desperately still want that moment. And we, from a business perspective, need to create that moment. So forcing us to take everything that we've learned over decades of how to create this beautiful on-trade moment curated by our incredible bartender partners and bring that to life in home whether that's you know through digital content, whether that's through the kind of work we're doing in store, whether that's through virtual tastings, and all of a sudden we've realized God, these are things we should have been doing right for forever. this is it's wonderful. it's working in the current climate but you know when we were lucky we would maybe get 20 consumers to have that magical moment with a bartender per evening. We're now getting tasting sessions where we're having a thousand people online connecting with our bartenders, connecting with our ambassadors all sitting at home, mixing up cocktails by themselves, some beautiful, some somewhat less so. But all of a sudden we're delivering those moments on a scale we never dreamed of. And I don't think we'd have got there without this year.
2: Well, I think that that's one of those things where you kind of have to look for those imperfect experiences are exactly what makes them so much more approachable. I will say the best way that I ever got exposure to one of your brands was actually in a duty-free shop. Oh, where I, I was deciding which scotch whiskey to bring home to my family after a trip to Paris. And I called my husband, he goes, do they have Japanese whiskey? I said, yeah, actually they do. He says, if you can find the, I hope I don't mess up the pronunciation, the Hibiki. Yes, absolutely. He's like, you you must bring this home. And this is the most prized possession in my bar cabinet. And that's no disrespect to our other spirits clients at Profterra But I'm not allowed to touch that damn thing. So I think you know, making these brands more approachable via digital content allows you to, to bypass the fact that I just had to make a call to my husband from an airport and say, what the hell do I need to buy here?
1: We know, we've always known that word of mouth is by far our strongest and most powerful marketing tool. When you ask people, how did they discover brands? It is, it's husbands, friends, colleagues, bartenders, but it's often that personal touch of somebody taking the time to talk to you about, well, what do you like? Can I recommend you this? Let me tell you a bit about it. That's so incredibly powerful. And I don't think we'd ever really got our heads around the fact that it was possible to do that with that level of intimacy at scale. And that's what this year has taught us in a way that opportunity has been there for a while. The technology has been there for a while. But this forced us into it because we were so comfortable with our one-to-one, what we call hand-selling. The fact that we've suddenly realized like, oh, wow, there is a world at which we do this to millions of people, not hundreds, is just unbelievably exciting because, yeah, I'm glad it was Hibiki. That was a great choice. But that recommendation is normally the key.
4: So the pandemic has allowed portfolios like Beam to move from hand-selling to -to one-to-many. You know, in the U.S., there's retailers like Walmart and Home Depot who said that even in a post-pandemic world, they don't see a let-up in bulk buying, you know, stockpiling, all the frenzy that's happened around the pandemic and e-commerce. How do you foresee physical retail, restaurants, bars, e-commerce all shaking out post-pandemic?
1: God, that's, a, that's the million-dollar question. If I knew the answer, I would I would probably be earning a lot more than I am. <laughs> I think there are very different things happening, and I, I think the first thing I would say is I don't think there's a global pattern. When we're looking at data from Europe versus Asia versus the US, we're seeing incredibly different responses. That's partly because they had different start points. But the first thing I say is, if anyone is looking for here's the global response solution post COVID world, there is not one world. If I look more at, at the US specifically, I think you know, for me, when I look at ecom here. What I'm seeing actually mimics a lot of what we saw happening in Asia, actually, with the SARS pandemic. You know, SARS, in a sense, gave an incredible boost in penetration of e-commerce. It got a huge number of people who did not have that as part of their standard buying repertoire onto the platforms comfortable with it. And that was sustained. That really gave the biggest boost to, to e commerce in China and the levels you see penetration and frequency of shopping at. Now, I don't believe would have happened as fast without SARS. And I think that's what we're seeing in the US and in large parts of Europe. So you have to assume that that is going to continue, that most people are having a pretty good experience of that. I think that is quite diverse across rural and urban areas. I think the rural experience of e-commerce is still not strong and therefore probably will see less shifts there. But you will see in urban areas where you've got high population density, a phenomenal shift um, in the whole grocery area, but in, in especially in alcohol, which was pretty low. And I think what that means is for the econ providers is yes, people are stockpiling, but a lot of the behaviors around spontaneous purchases, just thinking, God, I've had one of those days and I just need a drink this evening, which I'm sure a lot of us have had recently. That's going to keep happening. So econ providers need to know that they are absolutely in stock. They need very immediate delivery options. They need probably lower minimum order quantities, which they're not going to love. And they have to develop that flexibility. And we have to work with them to make sure that happens and we will lose out on those shopping moments and people will go, I'll have something I've already got in the fridge already. So I think that level of flexibility and immediacy, which again, when I look at Asia, you know, why is e-commerce so prevalent in Asia? Because you can literally order a can of Coke and have it on your desk in the office in 25 minutes in Shanghai that flexibility and that that immediacy is going to have to come. It's going to be expected. So they're going to have to deliver on that, particularly in the urban
2: areas. I can't even get that in my own house. No, I mean, most people are like... No, no, no. I mean, like, to go from my 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 office to my kitchen and still have it in 25 minutes because <laughs> I can't find the damn thing anymore.
1: The first time I saw that in China, I was like, no, really? Like, what's the catch here? And they're just like, yeah, because, you know... Conce- Chinese consumers pretty demanding. And that's like, yeah, that's what I want. I want it now. So bring it to me.
2: How do you think about the impact on margins there? Because obviously labor costs vary market to market. So even as we kind of look more broadly into both e-com fulfillment last mile, but but also you were talking about, you know, varying minimums and things like that. Like how do you balance that idea that, you know, maybe e-commerce might be a, a lower margin business than obviously in the bar, which is not always necessarily an option in today's world, but even going into the direct retail location, how do you, how do you balance that meeting consumers on in the way that they want it versus the necessities of running a profitable business to, you know, keep yourselves in (laughs) blood?
1: Yeah, and, and that's a huge challenge. And that's one thing where, again, sorry, I keep, keep coming back to China, but for me, it's just such an interesting market to look at when you're kind of thinking about what the future might look like, because it is a, a bit ahead. China trained people to pay for delivery. So that is the big, big win they have is it's just accepted. It's not a big cost and they have very low labor cost and very high population density, so it's manageable. But it was just kind of baked into the way Econ developed. I don't think the Western consumers think that way or are happy to sign up. They, they have an addiction to the concept of free delivery, which I don't think is going away. So I think the real challenge is this will be a lower margin channel for us unless we can really drive our premium portfolio. So the imperative behind getting people to be buying at the top of the portfolio, not at the bottom, particularly for those immediate moments, is going to be huge. If they're buying the bigger, bulk, lower-margin stuff, then slower delivery, bigger order quantities can probably carry. But we need to make sure that you know if we're not able to cover those costs through a charging for delivery model, which I think is unlikely, then we're going to have to somehow make it work by trading people up. And that's where we have to think about ecom not as a transactional channel, but as a driver of fantastic, rich content, brand experience, and as a brand-building channel, which I think is. What I'm worried, I'm not seeing enough of right now.
4: Oh my God. Everything you just said in the last 30 seconds is gold, Jessica. And we actually, (laughs) we recorded an episode with an individual who was a leader at Amazon in fulfillment. And pretty much he said, you know, we got people addicted to free shipping. That's what drives conversion. So, you know, everything that you were just saying. In our brief time getting to know each other, I feel you and I, and Sarah included, We share a similar leadership principle of people, then process, then product. What have you found the best way to organize your team internally around the changing customer journey and spirits?
1: God, this is a big one. And and full transparency, we are very, very work in progress. So I'll, I'll share where we are on the journey. I think the first big thing, which kind of almost came before that, was actually setting up the basic understanding across the team that what we exist to do is to deliver experiences. Now on one level, I find experience has become like massively overused and it's become a bit of a buzzword across far too many categories like toothpaste or explaining to you the experience you're having. Drinks was always an experience. That was always the heart of what we do. But we haven't thought about that. We've thought about touch points. We've thought about social media. We've thought about digital. We've thought about BTL and all sitting in silos and trying to get the whole team to understand that they have nothing more fundamental to do than to deliver a phenomenal brand experience to the consumer and that that's how they have to be organized has been a huge shift. So introducing the concept of consumer experience as our ultimate delivery, not a product, because I love our liquids. I think they're the most beautiful things in the world. But at the end of the day, we're selling moments. We're selling fabulous, gorgeous moments, whether that's relaxing, celebrating, connecting with people in person or over Zoom we sell experiences and you have to think about what it takes to build that up. And therefore you have to think about how you're going to choreograph that moment and rethink the role of your teams. So the first thing was just landing that thought, which sounds like super basic. It isn't how most people organize and it's not how most teams would define themselves. They would define themselves as I'm here to build the brand or sell the brand. Like, no, you're here to deliver experience. Trust me, the brand will sell. You do that well. So that's kind of been one big shift that we're still working through. The second big area has been around looking very much at both on a people and a process side on speed and responsiveness. I think people who've perhaps been more advanced in e com than us for a while already know this. But the frequency of internal engagement and how you keep people connected to fast changing changes that, you know, in real time data of getting a range of inputs coming in and having the flexibility to action them. Most of our process is not designed for. We are designed at best to kind of pivot and change, maybe on a monthly basis, if we're lucky. Sometimes like tiny, tiny things you can do in a week, but really tiny. And getting people to understand that they're going to get data in on an hourly basis and that that's going to tell them what they need to be changing and discussing with the customers and how they need to be thinking about the site and the content and how they need to be pivoting faster. We just didn't have the processes to let that happen. Physically wasn't the time or the, the moments people didn't understand. So I think focusing everything around speed and responsiveness, not chaos, which can, you know, take agility to an extreme and you just get complete mayhem but organized speed and responsiveness. And I think designing processes with that at the heart of it is really important.
2: We talk about that with with our clients a lot, the, the, uh, the maturity curve Mm. and how you accelerate the maturity curve without being, you know, reckless. Those who were in e-commerce and were focused on evangelizing are not necessarily the same people that are change management people. Yes. They could be like, the gurus, if you will, the emerging media people, the same people that evangelized search in the early days and social in the early days. But an evangelist in e-commerce is very different than a systems integrator and one who creates agile processes to integrate this. And I think one of the the, the differences that people don't necessarily or the companies don't necessarily fully appreciate, and it sounds like you do, is the idea that something like e-commerce, these are commercial realities. These are things that affect everything from supply chain to inventory management, marketing, sales, brand experience, customer experience, relationships with distributors, relationships with bartenders, and how that worked and and, and the role that e-commerce plays in all of that. So you almost have to speak the same language as each of those people, and capabilities in each of those markets based on the maturity curve of each of those markets against each of those brands. Pretty freaking hard.
1: Yeah, no, I God, that, that makes absolute sense. And I think, I think the thing you highlight about that separation of the change management piece from the, the sort of, I love the word, the evangelist piece, that's so critical because I think often what we're guilty of, and God, I hope it's not just us, is we kind of think the tech and the tools will do the change you know we're fine we've got a better tool now so we we're going to be good and we massively underinvest in the people required to drive the change management we sort of think if we if we give people the right things then they'll kind of work it out by themselves and we're going to be fine and we're like no just because you put a phenomenal tool in front of people if you've not engaged with the team and said what's the change management journey who's accountable for that and it can't be the users it needs to be somebody separate it needs to be somebody whose only job is saying How are we going to get usage of this? What's it going to take? Who do I need to engage with? How do I coach them through that process? And how do I change our processes to make sure we get full value? If you don't do that, you're just adding shiny toys on top of things, but none of it actually changes and people default back to what they were doing. And um, so you may have individual stars, but you haven't created an e-com system and you haven't created actually a digitally connected system, again, delivering those experiences.
4: No, but and you that's know, something I've, I want to double, I've double click on what you just said, Jessica, because it's so <laughs> important for every marketer and executive to really understand. You only get out of software what you put into it. And I think that's why Salesforce is one of the most valuable companies in the world. Salesforce made their products so complicated. That the only way a company can actually use it is if you assign a Salesforce administrator. And that relationship to headcount to software in order to drive success is so important.
1: Yeah. And, I, you know, for me, I'm a massive fan of, of simple systems that don't need that sort of ongoing engagement, but of investing heavily during the time of implementation in the change management to get the new habits and new behaviors, you know, set into the team perfect world. Your tools should be intuitive. They should help the team. They should be the kind of thing, they should be magnets for the team. You know, it should be the place you get drawn to because you suddenly realize how much value it's adding. But even with that, even the most amazing piece of software is never going to just land by itself. You have to give it that early stage of teaching it to walk, teaching people to play with it um, and and get it settled. And I, I think that's, you know, normally it's about a six month process minimum where you have to just have this change management piece alongside it. And then hopefully it's up and running by itself and fabulous. But if you don't do that, you end up with yeah a load of white elephants, which you're normally paying a lot for and you're getting unbelievably little value out of.
2: Or worse, negative value. I mean, I think, think about Twitter 10 years ago. If you had the wrong person representing your brand on Twitter, whether that was ten years ago or even yesterday, and there are plenty of people that still are getting it wrong, the way you can erode your brand equity is 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 extraordinary and I think the same thing would be true in ecom if you teach people how to if you give people a tool and they misunderstand the data or they misunderstand the action, you could be pissing away a lot of money, you could be burning bridges with retailers there's there's there is so much risk of, of using the tools incorrectly. I mean, my, my husband had asked my son to to cut up a, a fence panel last week. And I said, are you crazy? Like he's going to cut off his fingers. This is, this is a terrible idea. This is my second reference to my husband. The first is about drinking. The second one is a give, about giving my 19-year-old son power tools. This isn't really helping his PR. I hope he doesn't listen to the podcast. I mean, if he did, I know. Yesterday my husband cut up the fence panel, just to be clear. But but I think that's the whole thing. You gotta give people the tools that they and, and 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 teach them how to handle it. And 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 if they can't, have them apprentice until they can.
1: Yeah, and you know, we've also got to be very humble on this. This is often a bunch of data that doesn't look like anything that we've seen before, and particularly I find at a senior management level. It's hard to explain sometimes, you know, not, won't speak, speak ill of my current colleagues who are amazing and very forward cool thinking. But in my previous company, I, I did sometimes struggle when they were saying, can't you just like on this whole digital nonsense? Can't you just give me like a GRP? Like, no. No, that that that's not gonna happen. But you know, for people who grew up in a world where TV was the media, that was much more comfortable. And they're looking for that level of, oh, I know what that number tells me, I know what that number means, I can work with that. And on e-com, you know, it's it's on one level people are kind of blown away by the depth of data you can get, but on the other hand, it's very unfamiliar. And Therefore, often it ends up that data ends up getting pushed very far down the organization instead of being elevated up to the more senior levels, because it often has strategic impact beyond e-commerce. But if people don't feel comfortable with it, and often at that level, they don't necessarily feel comfortable saying they're not comfortable with it, you kind of stop. You hit a bit of a ceiling and e-commerce sits quite low in the organization. I think this happened with digital marketing as well. You know, you gave digital marketing to the bright young grad because, you know, it's new stuff. We don't really get it. And that's incredibly dangerous as well. So that whole demystification of what is this data telling us? How insightful can this be? What are the bigger implications of it about what our consumers are doing, what they're interested in, what they love, what they hate, where the opportunities are? Um, Elevating that up as well takes a lot of skill. And again, I I think we often tend to underinvest in.
4: Preach. Well, Jessica, you have provided our audience with so many golden nuggets. I mean, econ profitability, what it takes to really nail levels that we see in the East to the West in terms of distribution and penetration, how to organize your team, how to elevate e-commerce data. Now we get to perhaps the most insightful question of the entire podcast. What is the bravest thing that you've ever done?
1: I'll bring my husband into this. I debated this with him. We we, we had a few candidates, but we kept coming back to one. And this is a bit of a weird one, because honestly, at the time, I did not think this was brave. This seemed completely logical to me. But the thing that I would probably hone in on was about, God, 14, 15 years ago, on the basis of two visits and a great night out, we moved to Russia. I moved to Russia by myself. My husband didn't come with me initially. He joined like five, six months later, which was smart. I spoke no Russian. I knew literally nobody there beyond the person I was going to work for. And I moved with four weeks notice thinking this would be interesting. And when I look back, I kind of do remember that some of my friends looked at me at the time and were like, huh, interesting choice. Nobody said, are you insane? But I think they were thinking it. But now when I kind of look back, I'm like, what the hell was I thinking? Like I did no homework on this. Yeah. I'd literally been there for four days. I didn't know the city. And I landed in some weird apartment, which didn't have hot water by myself. For, like in that first weekend, I just sat there and thought, "Huh, OK, this is different. Was it the winter? Uh, thankfully, it was summer. So that was good. The reason for the no hot water is actually Moscow used to. They, they've stopped this now. They used to turn off the hot water in summer to uh, clean the pipes. So you have five weeks with no hot water. and Nobody told me this. So I went into the office Monday and they're like, how's the apartment? I'm like, well, it's great, but it's got no hot water. They're like, oh yeah, no, no one does. Don't worry. I was like, really? (laughs) It was amazing. It was the most brilliant thing I've ever done. I don't think I would be anywhere. I wouldn't have had the uh, incredible last 15 years I've had and the most wonderful experiences without doing that. But when I look back, I do think brave slash foolhardy, that one was probably on the edge.
2: It's usually somewhere in between the two that actually makes it brave.
1: Yeah, this, this may have pushed it a little further than I needed to. That There could have been some risk mitigation I could have built into this plan. But, um, oh, and I was trying to plan a wedding at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> Were you married in Russia? No, we actually, we came back. We came back home to get married. But yes, I moved. And I remember my mother at one point was sort of saying to me, darling, the, the ribbons on the order of service don't match your, your gown. And I was like, I have no hot water. I have no friends. And I don't understand where to buy food. Like, <laughs> i fine. The gown will clash. I'm okay with that. <laughs>
2: That's awesome. And also sad.
1: Yeah, it's a bit disturbing, but it was, it all worked out in the end. It was all good.
2: <laughs> the time gives the distance for you to laugh about it.
1: It does. There were some bleak moments, but um, no, it was still wouldn't change it for the world.
4: Well, I hope you have hot water in New York City. Plenty. Yeah, seems good. Thank you so much for spending time with Sarah and I. Again, you drop so much knowledge. Everyone watch Bean Suntory. Amazing things are happening there. And Jessica, thank you for your leadership.
1: Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening.
2: Please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Spotify and Google Podcasts. And don't forget to share this link with a friend.
3: Hey there, podcast fam. Are you ready to break free from the social media rut? Hold on to your hatch because we've got just the thing for you. Meet Viral Growth, your one-stop shop for leveling up your online presence.